if you recall our outline of the whole Bible, which goes like this, Roman numeral 1, Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Roman numeral 2, Genesis 3, fall. Roman numeral 3, Genesis 4 through Revelation 22, trying to get back to Genesis 1 and 2, only better. If you remember that, then you'll know that as we consider chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, that we are at the very beginning of the very long end of our outline of the Bible, which I've said as well is also an outline of history. The story of history is trying to get back to Genesis 1 and 2, only better. So Genesis 4 sort of finds us in this, uh, in a very pa powerful sense, a, a post-apocalyptic world. Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. They've been sent out into uh, the wilderness, which is now a wilderness uh, where lions don't lie down with lambs. It's a, now a wilderness uh, overrun with thorns and thistles. It's now a wilderness where Adam and Eve are uh, estranged from each other. But it's in this context that chapter 4 begins with the birth of a child. And then comes the birth of another child. And you, you might be mistaken to think, if you did come to the Bible for the first time, unfamiliar with this, to think, well, maybe things are looking up. Maybe this is the fulfillment of that dominion mandate. Here's Adam and Eve trying to be fruitful, trying to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And God's blessing them uh, in their labors. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Adam and Eve thought the same thing. Now, these two are the only two people in the history of the world to have experienced both sides of what it's like to be sinless and what it's like to be sinful, what it's like to live in a world without sin and what it's like to live in a world with sin. I can't begin to imagine what kind of uh, sort of spiritual whiplash that would have caused for them, nor the pain that would have accompanied that. But again, they're also the first to be made aware of the grace of God and the sureness of his promises. So I don't know how hopeful they were as they're raising up these first two sons. Are they thinking to themselves, uh, let's hurry up and get to Revelation 22 to get to the end of this story. This is just so difficult. Or are they thinking to themselves, well, this is certainly more difficult than things were, but God is good and we're moving forward. And look, we've got this nice, blessed family. I don't know. I don't know which perspective they had. Which means, in turn, I don't know how surprised they would have been by the account of what happens between Cain and Abel. Now, you are familiar with that story. Each of them brought a sacrifice to God. And I, I want to make a point, but I want to do it carefully. We're told, of course, that Cain brought of uh, the fruit of the ground that he had raised up, you could, whereas Abel brought uh, the flesh of a beast. And you can 
make the case, in fact, I, I would make the case, that there's, again, a lesson here akin to the lesson uh, of God taking away Adam and Eve's fig leaves and giving them an animal skin. That one of the defining qualities of the distinction between the sacrifices which are brought is that Abel's sacrifice involved the shedding of blood, whereas Cain's sacrifice did not. The, the caveat I want to add to that, I don't want to overstep the bounds and suggest that in no circumstances, in no way, should anyone ever bring a sacrifice to God that doesn't involve the shedding of blood. And I wouldn't say that because God commanded uh, God's people through Moses in the uh, Pentateuch to, to do just that, to bring grain offerings, to bring offerings of wine and olive oil and various other kinds of uh, sort of fruit of the ground. So it may be that part of uh, God's displeasure with Cain's sacrifice was that there was no shedding of blood. But it may not be. It may be his attitude. What we don't know is all that God revealed about what his expectations were about sacrifices. What we do know is that God told Cain what was expected of him. When Cain... Uh, is grumbling, uh, sort of murmuring under his breath because God's not pleased. God says to him, I don't understand what your problem is. I don't understand what your issue is. Why are you not pleased? I told you what to do. And if you had done it, it would have been fine. But you haven't done what I told you to do. Does that remind you of anybody? Here's a good place to apply the R.C. Sproul Jr. principle of hermeneutics. And to recognize ourselves in Cain. How often do we grumble against God because of our circumstances? Now, God doesn't dole out his favor to us in precise measurement that is equal to our obedience. If he did that, then we would all be in hell now and forever. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. I'm going to hold on to my sovereign right to make these decisions on my own. But what that reminds us of is that he doesn't owe us anything but his judgment. So when we grumble and when we complain, we're saying to God, yes, I know I haven't obeyed all that you commanded. I know that according to strict justice, I'm due eternal damnation. But for Pete's sake, God, where's my good stuff? Why aren't you giving me the good stuff? Well, the only way we could obligate God to give us the good stuff is if we were perfect. The only way he would owe us is if we never broke his law. That's not the case with Cain. So how does Cain respond to God being pleased with Abel's sacrifice and displeased with Cain's sacrifice? He kills Abel. Now, why do you suppose that is? Do you think... If he were to, if, if, if Cain were able to look at things rationally, 
Do you think he has any reason whatsoever to be mad at Abel? What did Abel do? They did what God said. Is that a bad thing? No, that's not a bad thing. So why is he mad at Abel? Why is not, I want to suggest he's not really mad at Abel. If you want to know who Cain is mad at, it's the one who was displeased with him. He was mad at God. So why didn't he kill God instead of Abel? Well, for two reasons. One, because he can't. God's not killable. And Cain certainly knew that. So the second reason is he knows if he tries, things will go badly. So what does he do instead? Well, takes us back to Genesis 2. He kills the one who bears the image of the one he wants to kill. What he wants to kill is God. What he kills instead is God's image bearer, which is Abel. Now, very quickly, I want to uh, turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 12, where we read about this incident, where the writer of Hebrews is expressing the reality of what happens when we gather with worship, you remember this text where, where Paul says, excuse me, I said Paul because I think Paul wrote Hebrews, though I don't want to have to try to prove it. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, we do not come with uh, the mountain that was covered with smoke and with fire and with thunder and, and anyone touched it, they would be killed and they were so afraid. That's not where we go, but we go to the true and eternal Mount Zion to the innumerable company of angels, to the living God, to the souls of just men made perfect. And then the text speaks of the blood of the covenant, which speaks of better things than Abel. I just, such a moment of poetry, such a moment that, that demonstrates for us the unity of the whole of Scripture. What does that mean? The blood that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Well, it's certainly true that Jesus was innocent and Abel was not completely, but I don't think that's the point. I think, according to uh, what we learn in Genesis chapter 4, is that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, seeking vengeance, seeking retribution. Perfectly justly, the blood of Abel is saying to the living God, go punish Cain. What's the blood of Christ say? The blood of Christ says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The blood of Christ says, it is finished. The blood of Christ says, by you striking and smiting and afflicting me, my bride is set free and covered. Cain is the first murderer 
Abel is the first victim. Jesus was in one sense murdered in the sense that those who put him to death meant him evil, intended to murder him, but in another sense he wasn't because he laid his own life down. He became the one true eternal sacrifice. Now, if you remember when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, I suggested that there are other things going on in this account than simply God creating all things. One of the things that we talked about was God coming and assessing his work, God coming and judging how he's done. And the text would repeat at the end of each day. And God saw that it was good. But something else we noted is that God is all the time in the creation account dividing things. He separates the water from the ground. He separates the earth from the sky. He separates day and night. All of these kinds of separations are essential to what he is and give us a clue about what's coming. If it's true, and it is, that all of history, that that Genesis uh, 4 through Revelation 22 is the story of the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, then we should not be surprised to see that battle played out in the pages of Scripture. We see the same division that we've talked about in the division between Cain and Abel. What they have in common is, yes, they're both sinners. They both need a sacrifice. Abel, however, brings a sacrifice God is pleased with. Cain does not. Cain murders his brother and is sent away from the clan. And in Genesis 4, and we're going to see more of this as as the story continues, in Genesis 4, we see the wicked line of Cain increasing in its wickedness. This division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is illustrated for us in showing the wickedness of the seed of the woman, excuse me, the seed of the serpent, which is from the line of Cain. Let's look at verse 17, beginning of verse 17 from chapter 4. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mehezuel, and Mehezuel fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. Oh my. Things are getting bad. Things are going downhill. Things are not going the way God commanded. Lamech takes two wives. But that is just the beginning of his wickedness. The name of the one was Ada. The name of the other, Zillah. 
Abel bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namak. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Cain's descendants are boasting of being more important, more valuable, more dignified than God himself. They will establish, Lamech says, I will establish the law. I will take a second wife. I will pursue vengeance above and beyond an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is where that line is going. Things are getting worse. Yes, there is. I want you to remember this. There is uh, still a remnant of the image of God in this line. You can see that in the description of Tubal and Tubal Cain. They're, uh, they are, in one sense, exercising dominion, are they not? They're, they're uh, cattle farmers. They're uh, makers of musical instruments. They're uh, forgers of metals. But, just like we'll see even more powerfully in the story of the Tower of Babel, they do all of these things for their own name's sake. Cain names his city after his son. Lamech writes a song in praise of Lamech. You see, that original call, that, that creation uh, dominion mandate where God calls Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, they are to do for God's glory according to God's law. And when sin enters in, it's not like they completely lose sight of that exercise of dominion. What they lose sight of is the purpose of the dominion. They lose sight of the pursuit of the glory of God. And it doesn't go well. Next time, we're going to look at Genesis 5. We're going to see what's happening, what's going on at the same time that Cain's descendants are getting into greater and greater trouble. We're going to see what happens when the line of Seth calls upon the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 6, what happens when these two lines intermingle. I hope you'll come back and join us next time when we consider Genesis chapter 5.